Good morning. It is good to see you, all of those who are here in person, all of you who are watching online from home. Uh, I, I hope that during this time where there is increased concern, and rightfully so, as COVID kind of comes back in force, and we have some folks who are who had been coming for a while, who are choosing to stay at home. I hope this is a time as a church where we can continue to look out for one another, and we've got to go a little further and look out for folks that we may not be seeing. And so I would encourage you, whether you're at home, whether you're here in person, to reach out, send a, che- uh, send a text, see how folks are doing, let them know that we love them, that we care about them. A lot of people have struggled for a long time with disconnection and isolation. And we have an opportunity and an obligation to step up as the church in ways that are more difficult than ever right now to be there for one another, even as we are apart in many ways. All right, I want to start with a little audience participation. I want you to look at the pictures on the screen, the picture on the screen behind me. You don't have to shout it out, but you can. Do you know who these two gentlemen are on the picture? I'm seeing some heads nod. So one is Sir Richard Branson, and one is Jeff Bezos. And you may know a couple of things about them. Both are multi-billionaires, and Bezos regularly is jockeying at the top of the list of the wealthiest individuals in the world. Uh, Branson started the, the Virgin Business Groups, and there's all sorts of those. And Bezos, you know, from Amazon Claim and all the other things that they've bought and purchased. Okay, the second question is, do you know why they've been in the news a lot recently? Not just because, you know, they're really wealthy individuals, but especially in stories that overlap. It's because both of them went to space-ish, sort of. I let other people debate exactly how much in space they actually went, but they left at least to some extent part of the Earth's atmosphere for a few minutes. All right, so if any of you are also thinking about becoming a multi-billionaire, and I've given that some thought lately. I'm I'm mulling that around. Maybe that's something I'll, I'll take up before now. And if you get tired of private island living, because how long could you do that? Or you get tired of cruising around the the Riviera in your $350 million yacht, and you decide, I've got to do something more with my life, I've got, to, I've got to launch myself into space, then you can be like these multi-billionaires and others that have gotten into this space race. And I, I tell their story not because I care that much about multi-billionaires who launch themselves into space. There's interesting stories about those who went with Bezos, and I may share that at another time. But I share that story because I I heard snippets of interviews of both of them after they went. And they alluded to something that almost every person that has been to space and higher and been there longer than these two individuals, 
They alluded to an experience that almost every one of them describes in one way or another. And sociologists have been begin to describe those experiences and the impact on them as the overview effect. And I'm going to explain that a little more in just a minute. But I want you to think about this. Until we sent satellites into space and then not long after people into space, we humans had one view of the earth. And it was really up close and personal. It was what was right around us and what we could see with the naked eye. And it wasn't that long ago that we finally got off the ground in planes. And we've got a pilot in here. We've got a a helicopter pilot in here. And then others of us have been up in planes before. So we know that experience when you're 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 feet in the air. You know how differently the earth looks from up there than down here. And as far as I know, no one in here has been to space, but we've seen pictures now and we've seen videos now, but those who have gone says those pictures, those videos, they just can't do it justice. So there's this common belief, and maybe you've heard it, that there are a few man-made structures that can be seen from space. And the one that I had heard for the longest time was the Great Wall of China. Have you heard that? That is false. That is not visible from the naked eye. Now, I'm not talking about with zoom lenses. I'm not talking about can you get on Google Earth right now while I'm talking and zoom down until you see your house. That's really interesting. I've done it before. Maybe you've done it before. I'm talking about from the naked eye. You can't see with the naked eye from space anything that is made by people. All you have is this experience of what seemed at one time all-encompassing, now seeming smaller and smaller and more distant. The overview effect, as sociologists describe it, and let's go ahead and run that video if we can in the background while I talk. It's what happens when you leave the atmosphere for the less than 600 humans that have ever done it. And you start to see the earth, but instead of the small little segments that we live in, you start to see the whole, the big picture. And you start to see the earth in comparison to where it fits within the rest of the universe, the cosmos. Astronauts who've gone to the moon talk about just how small the earth is when you see it in the vastness of space. And it is beautiful and strong, but small and fragile, and you can no longer see national borders or boundaries, and the conflicts that are all around and divide people, they are less 
important, and it's replaced by this need to see the big picture because your viewpoint is forever changed, and to see the connection of it all, and the way that it comes together for people and creation, and almost every astronaut and cosmonaut and taikonaut, which I read, that's what the Chinese call their astronauts, they report having a similar experience. And I would suggest to you that we are in desperate need of a little more overview effect in our lives. And we are in desperate need always in the church, and I'm not just talking about this church, but the church across the the city and across the nation and across the world to have a bit of that overview effect because up close we get caught up in all the differences and sometimes petty differences and we make endless rules then about who's in and who's out of the club and when someone doesn't live up to those rules then we break bonds and we build boundaries to define the insiders and the outsiders until the insiders can't get along and so we break more bonds and we build more boundaries and then we break more bonds and then we build more boundaries. I've told this before but my brother got married in a church in a small town north of Tulsa, Oklahoma In that town, there is one stoplight, and there are three churches of Christ. There is one stoplight and three churches of Christ. And that's not even considering all the other Christians who meet under different names, with different signs out front. And the question is, how Does it come to that? And I would suggest in so many ways we have lost that big picture. And it's time to leave orbit again. To exit the atmosphere and see the whole story of God's good design. Zoom out and what do you see? There is one body and one spirit, just as we are called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Up close, so often all we see are the differences. What separates the world into different levels and gradations of power and prestige. But when you zoom out, what do you see? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Or if you want to go over to how Paul describes it in Colossians, You can have a discussion of circumcision and barbarians and Scythians, whatever that means and whoever they are. 
but it all keeps coming back to this same discussion. Up close, it can be all about who's more or less important, more or less special, more or less gifted and talented and vital and called. But when you zoom out, what do you see about the body? Everyone is called. Everyone is gifted. Everyone is empowered. Everyone is vital. Everyone is a critical part. And while the parts are different and have different functions and purposes, they are all equally connected and equally called to use the ways they have been gifted to build up the body for the glory of God. Multiple times in Scripture, we hear a vision from God that all humanity would leave the atmosphere of their dividing tongues and warring tribes It is a picture that is painted in the prophets, like the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 2 envisions a time when people from every nation and tribe and tongue would gather around God at the mountain of God, the temple of God. And as they come, they bring their weapons with them, but they won't be used as weapons anymore. They beat swords into plowshares. What were weapons of taking life become devices of growth and productivity. And it is the vision that ends Scripture. In Revelation, the vision of John that there is this great multitude that's so big no one can count and it's people from every nation and tribe and people and language and they are standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb. It is a vision that we start to get a glimpse of in Acts 2 when what happens, people from every language, from all over come together and they hear the good news. It is a vision that Jesus prays for, that Jamie read for us. From John, when Jesus prays in John 17 for unity, for oneness among His people. Why? Because that unity and oneness reflects the very nature of God. As Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Him, and the Son is with them, there is a unity even in the midst of the Trinity. And he says, that kind of unity, that kind of bond, I'm praying for that for the people to come. And this is the vision that Paul continually presents to the churches in his letters. Because if you spend any time in the epistles that Paul sends out to different churches, then you will notice that the churches are extremely diverse. They are not made up of people who think the same, who come from the same backgrounds, who all arrive at the same conclusions. They are churches, every one of them, that struggles in some way with their incredible diversity and how that can create division 
if they're not careful, if they don't fight against that. And so people come from different ethnicities and economic levels. They come together from vastly different religious and cultural backgrounds. They come from a society that is deeply divided by power and status, slave below free, and non-Roman citizens below Roman citizens. But if you're a Jew, you consider yourself above all the other non-Jews and women below men and poor below rich and slaves and women and children. They're all treated as property. And every time the church gathers, they are urged to check all of that at the door. Wherever you're coming from, All that baggage, all that difference, all those degrees of separation, when we gather as the people of God, we are a different kind of people. What works out there doesn't work in here. You've got to drop the divisions and the distinction. Cut out the cliques and the closed circles. Open the doors and open your hearts Humble yourselves and lift up others because God is not a God of favoritism. So you don't show favoritism. God does not look at the outside. He looks at the heart. So what do we do? We have new lenses. We have new eyes. New creation has come. Be a people of new creation because God is up to something new. Come together Commune, unite. Which has always been easier said than done. The church has never gotten this completely right because humanity has never gotten this completely right. Read through the New Testament. You'll see the early church did not get this right. We aren't called to replicate the early churches because they struggled as much in their day as we struggle in ours. What we are called to do is be a people of God's restoration of creation. The vision that He set out for the world in the first place, we're living into that ideal. Or as Paul calls it, the new creation. What God had always designed for the world, we're supposed to be the the first fruits of that possibility of what the world can be. And the church in Philippi is a great case study in this. So as much as this church in Philippi, where Paul writes to the Philippians, as much as they have going for it, and they've got a lot going for that church, you will see in reading it that they are not perfect, that there's some things that are dividing them, that are keeping them apart. And so Paul is imprisoned in some capacity. It it may be some sort of uh, home imprisonment. We're not sure, but he's not around. And he wants to go and visit this church, and he tells them, I want to come see you, but I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to work that out because I'm not exactly the one controlling my schedule right now. Maybe I'll get to see you in the future. Maybe I won't. But, Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. There's this oneness that he keeps coming back to. That idea of striving together as one is an athletic metaphor. And you know this when you've seen teams that are made up of really talented individuals, but they don't know how to compete together as a team. No matter how talented you have as individual players on a team, if you cannot get together and find your parts and find your place and work to something bigger than yourself, then what happens to that team, even the most talented fall, they fail, not because they didn't have the talent, but because they could not work together, contend together, strive together as a team. Even though they brought their different abilities, their different perspectives, their different approaches, if you can bring that together, that's where the strength is. And he continues that thing in the next chapter. So look at verse 1. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, Any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy. Let me pause there. That's that's supposed to be a given. He's saying, hey, have you ever felt any love from Christ or compassion? Is the Spirit doing anything for you? Then let's get this thing together. Make my joy complete by having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We got it again here. Oneness, sameness, unity. It's interesting to me that twice here he comes back to this idea of same mind in that one verse. And I think it can be easy to conclude that having the same mind means we're supposed to think the same. Come to all the same conclusions and opinions. Which has led to Division after division after division, because anytime people disagree, well, I I guess I'm going to have to go start my own church. We're not of the same mind. Now I'm going to have to start my own church again, to where eventually you've got two churches in one family, because even the husband and wife, well, I don't I don't agree on this, and you don't agree on that. I guess I guess I'll be first church, and you can be second church. I'll worship in the living room. You can you can take the dining room. Sameness is not the same conclusions or the same opinions. Unity has never been about uniformity in all things. The sameness is that they keep coming to the same mindset even when they have differences. So what does he say in the next two verses? Here's what I'm talking about, he says. Don't just look out for yourselves. Look out for others. That's what unity looks like. Don't think of yourselves as more important than the others. You lift others up. That's what unity looks like. That's what coming together and striving together and contending together looks like. And if we have any doubt about that and what it looks like to have the same mind, look at what he says in verse 5. He's using the same word. Let the same mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us what Jesus did. And this is this famous Christ hymn in Philippians 2. 
where Jesus did not just look out for himself. In fact, he looked out for everyone but himself and continued to humble himself, lower himself in the form of a servant, in the form of a slave, in the form of a sacrifice on the cross. Why? So he could lift himself up? No. So he could lift up all humanity in the process. And Paul says, hey, if you want to know what it looks like to be a body, to have the same mind, have the mind of Christ. That's what we're after, which is not all thinking the same, but it is that same approach to others. It is more about attitude and action than dogma that leads to division. Having the same mind, even within our own families, as in coming to the same conclusion, that doesn't even happen. The only way a couple agrees on everything is if one spouse just isn't being honest. But you come together for something bigger, something more important. The relationship over the individual. And should it surprise us that this is the answer, the same mind is the attitude and action of Jesus. Should that surprise us when Jesus is the one that tells us that the entirety of the law boils down to two very simple things. Love God with everything you are and love others as if you're loving yourself. So I want to close this morning with a tradition from the Olympics. I'm going to make a confession here. I love the idea of the Olympics. But I didn't watch a whole lot this year. I watched more highlights online than I watched anything on TV. I'm one of the people that's making NBC nervous as they paid multi-billions for exclusive rights to show the Olympics and then not that many of us we're watching this year. But I, I, I love some of the highlights, and I especially love some of the stories that surround it, and I'll probably share a few of those with you over time. But the one I want to talk about right now has to do with the closing ceremony. And the reason why at the closing ceremony, which I did not watch this year, another confession, but at the closing ceremony, you may notice that the athletes do not walk behind their country's flag. And they do not walk exclusively with other people from their country. So if you've ever watched the opening ceremonies, then you will notice that at the opening ceremonies, people march in with others from their country. And someone from their country is carrying their flag. And it's this beautiful and powerful symbol. And so the United States, who always has one of the biggest contingents, just has this mass number of athletes. And they're all going together. And they're all dressed the same. And they march in line. And it's all one group. And then another country. And they're another country. And they're all different. And they're walking behind their separate flags. But when you get to the closing ceremony, it's different. The flags are put to the side, and people walk together, and there's a story behind that. In 1956, 
The games were held in Australia. And the games were teetering on chaos. So even before the games began, organizers were faced with calls to cancel, uh, to cancel the Olympics. There was international discord of all kinds, and it was spilling over into the games. So Egypt and Israel were in the middle of the Suez crisis. And so Egypt and Iraq and Lebanon, they boycotted the games that year. China boycotted the games that year because the Olympics included Taiwan. And Switzerland and Spain and the Netherlands, they boycotted the games that year. And even countries that sent delegates, that sent athletes, sent them with strict instructions, you are not to mingle with athletes from this country and this country and this country. So they're all in the Olympic Village, but they're all supposed to stay separate. You don't have anything to do with them. And right at the beginning of the games that year, it's only, uh, you know, about 12 years after the conclusion of World War II, and things are still kind of in flux, and they're trying to pick up the pieces in Europe. And right as the games were starting, the Soviet Union sent tanks into Hungary to, to quell an uprising, a rebellion, right at the beginning of the games. And Hungary and the Soviet Union both had athletes at the game. In fact, the highlight or the low light was a water polo match between the Soviet Union and Hungary. The athletes from Hungary only learned about the Soviet invasion after they were already at the Olympics. And then these teams met in the pool, and it became known as the blood in the water water polo match. And it became so vicious, they had to shut it down. And it was near the end of the Olympics, and they were thinking about shutting the whole thing down. And they were absolutely thinking about shutting the closing ceremonies down. When there was a young 17-year-old man, Australian of Chinese descent, John Ian Wing, and he sent a letter to the organizer of the Olympics in Melbourne. And he said, I understand that you're thinking about closing down the, uh, the closing ceremonies, just shutting it down altogether, not even having it. Let me, let me make a different suggestion, he said. People always march in with their own fellow countrymen behind their flag, but what if we put the flags aside? And what if no more than two people from the same country march together? Instead, they are all intermingled as they go. And the organizer got that letter a day before the closing ceremony was about to take place or really about to be canceled. And he said, this is beautiful. And so that's what they do now. The flags are put to the side, and this is from the Rio games. And the separation becomes connection. And the athletes who came in as simply representatives of their tribe, of their people, of their country. They go out in this symbolic gesture. We are one world, one nation, united 
for something bigger. This feels to me like a great vision for our world, and not the least of which, a great vision for the church. And not just this church, but the church across the city and the church across the country and the church across the world that can be so fragmented. I don't know about you, but I am tired. Every Sunday, across the nation and the world, Christians gather. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. I'm going to catch my breath. But you see it every week. We come in holding the flags of the things that are important to us. Issues that we think are vital. Sometimes multiple flags. We're carrying a whole armful in this one and a armful in that one of things we hold dear. And then we'd look to see, well, who's carrying the same flag that I'm carrying? That's who I'm going to march with. That's who I'm going to congregate with. That's who I'm going to collect with. I'm going to find the people who are carrying the same flag, who've got the same bumper sticker, who've changed their Facebook profile picture to look the same as I have for this week until we change it next week, and then we find out, oh, we're in different camps, and then maybe in a month we'll, we'll change it back, and we're in the same thing again. And it can be as benign as what college football team you root for and what college football team I root for, and we can, we can get together about that. And it can be as volatile as what your political leanings are and what my political leanings are. And it can be as divisive and as explosive as what you think about vaccines and the virus and mass mandates and what I think about it. And we carry in our flags and we proudly wave and we loudly talk. And sometimes we take our flags and we start to beat each other over the head with this position or that position. And sometimes we're much more subtle about it, and we're quiet about it, and I've I've got a whole host of flags. We all do. Those banners of things that we hold dear, that we find important, that we think is, is worthwhile, and I've got mine, a lot of them, and you've got yours, and I'm not suggesting, I'm not naive to think all of those will go to the wayside. In fact, it's often harder when we're carrying them, but we're not aware of them. We act ignorant to the allegiances we have. No, I'm not. I don't have any allegiance to that. We can be honest about the differences, but here's the challenge. We, we only gather with those who are carrying the same flags that we are. And we start to build up our thought borders and our ideological boundaries. And we only march with those who think the same and look the same. And I understand that. It feels easier. 
It feels safer. That is a popular model of doing church. That is a popular model of starting church. If you can just get people who think the same, wouldn't it be easier? If we only get together with other people who come to the same conclusions, wouldn't all of our blood pressure be a little lower? And we could take deep breaths and feel better. I get that appeal. But I can't help but ask, what if God's vision for the world embodied by the church has always been bigger than that? What if God's vision really is that it's not this tribe here and that tribe there and this tongue here and that tongue there, but that people from every tribe and tongue, from every nation and ethnicity, from every educational background and every economic background, from people who lean left and people who lean right and people who are a little more down the middle and people who are all over the place. Where we gather at the mountain of God. And we may come in from different places carrying our different banners and our flags, but I wonder if the vision for the church has not always been, you will be a very different people when you arrive. But when you leave, you carry one banner. You carry the banner of Christ. And you go out, despite all of your diversity, as one body, as one people, united under one Lord, through one faith and one baptism, one God who is over all and through all and in all.